today for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. I'm Alexandra Whelan, a barrister at Fountain Court Chambers. I've been with Fountain Court since 2016, having previously practiced as a solicitor in Australia. I have a general commercial practice, also covering financial and professional regulatory work, and I'm currently working on a number of fraud and banking cases. On this episode, we are looking at the implications of a post-Brexit world for civil litigation, particularly when it comes to issues such as jurisdiction, governing law and enforcement. I've dealt with jurisdictional issues in all areas of my practice and was recently led by Stephen Moriarty QC and Giles Robinson, also of this chambers, in a successful challenge to jurisdiction on the basis that, amongst other things, there was no serious issue to be tried because the claim was issue stopped. Joining me today in the discussion is Louise Merritt, a fellow barrister at Fountain Court. Louise has been with Chambers since 1995, and since 2003, she has combined her practice with an academic career. She is currently a professor of international commercial law at the University of Cambridge, with a focus of both her academic and her practice being conflicts of law. Her recent work includes being involved in an application for an anti-suit injunction against US discovery proceedings, an alternative service application in relation to a large insurance claim against insurers in Kuwait, the UAE and Qatar, and she'll be appearing in the Court of Appeal in December in connection with a very large multi-party bribery claim arguing about the applicability of a Swiss jurisdiction clause. In this episode, we're going to discuss the new law and jurisdiction post-Brexit, how the Hague Convention works and how this might all come together in practice. Louise and I will also speak about the impact of Brexit on choice of law rules and parallel proceedings in the UK and Europe, how the enforcement of English judgments in the EU has changed and what we might expect to see in the future. I hope you enjoy the episode. Today we're going to consider the implications of a post-Brexit world for civil litigation. In particular, we're going to look at jurisdiction, governing law and the recognition and enforcement of foreign judgments. Post-referendum, it became clear that a no-deal Brexit, by which we mean a Brexit where there were no new reciprocal regimes agreed, would have significant implications for civil justice because in a large number of cases, the rules that applied were provided by directly applicable European legislation. Indeed, there were concerns as to what Brexit would mean for the London Commercial Court as a centre for international commercial disputes. It also became clear from an early stage that some areas were going to be more straightforward to deal with than others. In particular, choice of law rules, that's the rules which apply to determine what law governs the substantive merits of a dispute, are easier because they do not require or envisage reciprocity. Also, the same rules applied in all cases before the English courts, whether they were European or not. And also the rules themselves were not controversial. In fact, the UK had chosen to opt into the Rome 1 and Rome 2 regulations. By contrast, rules relating to jurisdiction and which are the rules which govern whether the English court can hear a case in an international dispute and the rules which govern the enforcement of foreign judgments are more difficult because they do depend on reciprocity. So it became clear that we couldn't simply implement the European rules into domestic law. Now, although the UK left the European Union on the 31st of January 2020, there was a transition or implementation period in place during which that was the status quo. So all the existing rules applied. And that was to give the parties a chance to negotiate replacement regimes. Unfortunately, there were no deals in the area of civil litigation. So in this sector, at least, there was a hard Brexit when the implementation period ended on the 31st of December 2020, and that's the date that we'll be referring to as exit day. So, Alexandra, as a preliminary question, where do we find this new post-Brexit law? Thanks, Louise. So, as we've sort of already intimated, the withdrawal agreement between the UK and the EU doesn't say much about jurisdiction. 
Now, we used to have the Brussels regulation recast for the EU and the Lugano Convention for the EFTA member states, which people will be familiar with, and of course, the agreement on jurisdiction between the EU and Denmark. None of these have any legal effect in the UK anymore. The UK applied to join the Lugano Convention, and whilst non-EU states agreed, so that was Iceland, Norway, and Switzerland, the EU has said no. So we are moving away from those materials and into very much UK legislation. We have the Civil Jurisdiction and Judgments Act 1982. Now, that's been amended. We've got the introduction of new sections 3C, 3D and 3E, which give effect to the 1996, 2005 and 2007 Hague Conventions. Now, we'll come to the Hague Conventions later, but the application of these conventions in the UK is not new. They've been effective in the UK due to the UK's membership of the EU, but they are going to play a more important role in civil and commercial cases. And the really important one for our purposes is the Hague Choice of Court Convention 2005. So we've also got the introduction of new section 15A to E, which provides some new rules in cases involving consumer and employment contracts. And these rules mirror those in the Brussels 1 regulation recast. And finally, there have been some fairly important revisions to CPR Part 6, which deals with service. And uh, we might say a bit more about that later on. Thanks. And turning to the substance, what is the position now regarding whether an English court has jurisdiction in an international case? Right. So the old position, which people would be very familiar with, is that the court first had to decide whether the case was governed by the European rules or the common law. And for EU member states, we're really talking about the Brussels recast regulation and then for the EFTA member states, the Lugano Convention. Now, as I already said, that's very much the old world and we're into a new world now where the European rules don't continue to operate in the UK. And so all cases except for transitional cases are going to be governed by the common law with the various um, statutory regimes that are in place. Now, the operation of the transition rules depends on when the proceedings were commenced. So if the proceedings were commenced in the UK before 11pm on the 31st of December 2020, then still in the old world, we've got the Brussels regulation recast and we've also got probably the Ugano Convention continuing to apply. But if your proceedings were commenced after that date, then those regulation convention, that they don't apply. And we do have the Hague Convention, though. As I've said, that's not new, but we haven't tended to rely on it so much in the past. So that is going to become an important focus. Now, before we consider that in more detail, it is worth noting that the split between when your proceedings were commenced isn't as neat as it seems because while it may be that officially you're still in the old world if your proceedings are commenced before 31 December 2020, it's not really the same world because, for example, you the Court of Appeal can no longer make a reference to the European courts, so things have changed a bit and there are going to be a few wrinkles to sort out when running proceedings under under those old rules. But let's think about the Hague Convention. Now, Louise, can you tell me a bit about how that works? Well, the Hague Convention provides for parties to the convention, which means then currently all of the EU member states, as well as the UK and Mexico, Montenegro and Singapore, it gives effect to exclusive jurisdiction agreements in certain circumstances. And when the convention applies, it does three things. 
Firstly, the chosen court must take jurisdiction in the case. Secondly, all other courts must decline jurisdiction in favour of that chosen court. And thirdly, a judgment given by the chosen court under an exclusive jurisdiction court will benefit from virtually automatic recognition and enforcement in all other contracting states. The convention applies only to exclusive court agreements and in international and civil and commercial matters. But the convention also excludes a number of areas which previously were governed by the Brussels regime and which won't then be covered by the convention. And that includes cases where people are acting as a consumer, contracts of employment, insolvency matters, carriage of passengers and goods, competition matters, certain claims for personal injuries, tort claims in tangible property and also IP matters. Great. And so what are the main areas of uncertainty that you think we're going to face at the moment? Well, the Hague Convention, when it applies, will fill quite a lot of the gaps that were left by the Brussels regulation no longer applying in cases where there is an exclusive jurisdiction clause in European cases. But there are two, at least, areas of uncertainty. Firstly, the position of asymmetric jurisdiction clauses. So an asymmetric uh, jurisdiction clauses are widely used, particularly in banking contracts. And in that type of clause, the customer promises to sue only in one particular jurisdiction, usually the home jurisdiction of the bank. So in relation to the customer, it's an exclusive jurisdiction clause, but the bank retains the right to sue anywhere in the world. So, for example, anywhere that the customer happens to have assets when the judgments are trying to be enforced. So in relation to the bank, it's a non-exclusive jurisdiction clause. Now, there's a number of recent English decisions looking at asymmetric clauses in the context of the Brussels regime. And those cases tend to say that the um, Brussels regime applies and that you can enforce the exclusive part of an asymmetric clause under the Brussels regulation. Now, the problem for in relation to the Hague Convention is that the explanatory materials that were entered into before the uh, convention was signed make it clear expressly that they didn't intend asymmetric clauses to be included. Now, that leads to a problem and leads to an uncertainty which commercial parties will need to consider moving on, in particular, should they stop using asymmetric clauses. It's not the final word on the matter because the explanatory report is not binding. And I think we can at least argue that the type of reasoning used in the Brussels regulation cases could be applied under the Hague Convention. That is that we can enforce the exclusive part under the convention, even if not the non-exclusive part. But that's obviously going to be an area of uncertainty. The second potential problem relates to when the convention applies in a temporal sense. So the starting point is that the Hague Convention applies to exclusive court choice of court agreements included after its entry into force for the relevant state. And for the European member states, including the UK, that was on the 1st of October 2015. However, there's a potential difficulty in relation to the position of the UK. The UK's position is that the coverage of the Hague Convention is seamless. So we were a party to the Hague Convention by virtue of our EU membership from 2015. When we then acceded to the Hague Convention in our own right on exit day, there was a seamless uh, coverage and that all jurisdiction clauses from 2015 should be covered. However, the European Union's position is that they don't accept that. The EU's position is that the relevant date is exit day, the 1st of January 2021. So If that was right, there's then a gap in relation to enforcement where the jurisdiction clause was entered into between 2015 and 2021. 
as I say, that's the position of the European Union. The UK's position is that there is seamless coverage. But if we were trying to enforce a judgment in the European Union, then that uncertainty would become relevant. And that, again, leads to something that clients need to think about. So, for example, should parties be re-entering into their existing exclusive jurisdiction clauses just to make sure and to remove that uncertainty to make sure that they are now covered by the convention? So even though, as we've said, the Hague Convention isn't new, it is worth thinking about how this is actually going to work in practice. So if if you're a company seeking to pursue a dispute in England and you have a claiming contract with an exclusive jurisdiction clause in favour of England, then the Hague Convention will confer jurisdiction on England, provided that the contract was entered into after the 1st of October 2015, although subject to the little wrinkle that Louise has mentioned. Clause is an exclusive jurisdiction, so not asymmetric. And the matter is international, civil and commercial. Of course, there are also the sort of little carve-outs that Louise mentioned earlier. And turning to the common law, the position is that the English court has jurisdiction if and only if the defendant is served with the process in the authorised circumstances. Now, this is an area where domestic English rules have changed since Brexit. So it's worth just skating through what those changes are. If there is an exclusive jurisdiction clause that falls within the scope of the Hague Convention, for example, in favour of a European member state, then no permission is required to serve the defendant out of the UK. So that's now in 6.33, subsection 2, big B, little a. In practice, the more important change is that under CPR 6.33, 2, big B, little b, a claim form can be served out of the jurisdiction without permission whenever a contract contains a term to the effect that the court shall have jurisdiction to determine that claim. Now, this is an interesting change because it means that in any case where there is a jurisdiction clause in favour of the English courts, whether exclusive, non-exclusive or asymmetric, proceedings can be served of right. And Louise, I understand that this is actually something that's come up in your practice quite recently. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yes, that's right. I'm instructed by a company that's seeking to recover for COVID uh, business interruption losses under an insurance policy that's expressly governed by English law. And that policy also includes an unfortunately rather badly worded jurisdiction agreement in favour of England. Now, initially, when we were instructed, we were concerned with whether that was an exclusive or a non-exclusive clause because of the ability to serve in a Hague Convention case. However, as we were Considering that very issue, this other change came into force under the civil procedure rules, which of course now means that you can serve without the permission of the court, uh, even in cases in a non-exclusive jurisdiction clause. So that was great. So that was what we did. We were then able to serve proceedings in uh, Kuwait, the UAE and Qatar. The second interesting practical issue that then arose was that we then wanted to apply for alternative service. And at least one of those countries is party to the Hague Service Convention, which is a separate, it's different from the Hague Choice of Court Convention. This is a Hague Convention that deals with the actual practicalities of serving proceedings abroad. And we were trying to argue that we shouldn't be bound to adopt that mechanism, essentially because of the delays caused by COVID. And we wanted to be able to rely on a much quicker just being able to effectively email the proceedings. And that raised an interesting question because there were some authorities that seemed to suggest that in order to apply for permission for alternative service, you had to be applying for permission to serve out of the jurisdiction, which, of course, we no longer needed to do. And we argued that that wasn't right and that that would just not make any sense. Now the rules allowed us to serve without permission. You shouldn't have to apply for permission just to be able to ask for order for an alternative service. And that was our argument. And we applied for alternative service and the judge granted that order. 
So obviously, the, this change to the rules allowing for service without permission in any case where there's an English jurisdiction clause is going to be practically um, important to parties. In cases where there is no jurisdiction clause, of course, then we'll have to fall back on the old service out rules. So, Alexandra, what are those rules in outline? Yeah, so many people will be familiar with these, but essentially back to the usual position, the claimant needs to show a good arguable case that one of the grounds in paragraph 3.1 of practice direction 6B is satisfied, that they also need to show there's a serious issue to be tried on the merits of the claim and that England is clearly the proper forum in which to bring the claim, in which case the court will take into account the nature of the dispute and the legal and practical issues involved, such as local knowledge, availability of witnesses and so on. Now, of course, the court still has discretion, even if these requirements are satisfied. Separately, the English court has jurisdiction over a defendant if they submit to the jurisdiction. And then lastly, of course, if the defendant wants to dispute jurisdiction, they do so by filing an acknowledgement of service, indicating an intention to dispute, and then an application under Part 11 of the CPR. And they, of course, can either say there's no basis in law for permission, or even if there is a basis that the court should not have given permission. So that's really a snapshot of where we are as to jurisdiction in this post-Brexit situation. We now wanted to discuss a little what the position is in terms of choice of law and, and governing law of the claims. And I wanted to ask you, Louise, to start us off on that. Okay, so the old position was that choice of law rules were governed by the Rome 1 and Rome 2 regulations. The Rome 1 regulation deals with contract and the Rome 2 regulation deals with tort. And post-Brexit, of course, those regulations no longer have effect in uh, English law. But the new position, because choice of law rules don't require reciprocity, unlike jurisdiction and enforcement rules, as I said earlier, it was clear from an early stage that at least in the short term, we would be retaining these choice of law rules, but no longer as directly applicable European regulations, but part of the body of domestic retained EU law. And that was done subject to minor amendments under the law applicable to contractual obligations and non-contractual obligations amendment regulations. So, for example, Article 3 of the Rome 1 regulation in relation to contracts still applies. And under that provision, the general rule is that contract will be governed by any law expressly chosen by the parties. So an English express English choice of law clause will continue to be recognised. And that's the case in all the EU member states as well, because the choice of law rules apply even if it's the law of a non-EU country, which, of course, the UK is now. Now, looking forward, there are two areas that I think are going to raise issues. First of all, generally with retained EU law, the idea was that we took a snapshot of the rules as they were on exit day for continuity. And therefore, the Rome 1 regulation rules were implemented exactly as they were on exit day. However, in the longer term, now they're no longer bound to be applied as European rules, it will be for Parliament to decide what changes, if any, should be made to the substance of the rules. So, for example, in the context of the Rome 1 regulation, there were areas in the, in the earlier Rome Convention where we were able to opt out. And in fact, the UK did in relation to third state mandatory rules. Now that we're no longer bound by regulation, the UK Parliament could choose now to opt out of those rules in the regulation. The other thing is that we're no longer bound and we're not by any changes or new rules that are introduced. So, for example, there's a proposed new regulation dealing with the proprietary effects of assignment, and we're no longer bound to implement those rules. So almost inevitably, there will end up being a divergence between the version of the Rome 1 regulation, which applies as a matter of national retained EU law, 
and the version of the Rome 1 regulation, which applies directly in the rest of the European Union. The second broad issue is interpretation. Now, now that these provisions are matters of domestic law, although they look the same, currently at least, the courts may not be bound to interpret or apply the rules in exactly the same way now that we're no longer part of the EU and they're not part of European law. So, for example, any purposes to do with the internal market would no longer apply because we're no longer a member of the internal market. There will also be possible disputes about the continuing role of court of justice case law. There are detailed rules about this in the various withdrawal agreements, but the questions are going to arise as to in what circumstances English courts will depart from those cases, and specifically the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeal have been given the power to depart from existing case law. Alternatively, there may be arguments about whether it's possible to distinguish existing Court of Justice case law on the basis that now we're no longer a member of the European Union, that different considerations ought to apply. So that's the picture in relation to choice of law. The next issue, Alexandra, is what, what would happen in a case where a party attempted to launch parallel proceedings in another European state? Right. So the old position was that it was not possible to obtain an anti-suit injunction in respect of this kind of parallel proceedings in a European state. But the Brussels regulation and the Ghana Convention prevented parallel proceedings. Now, the new position is, as we've already intimated, if there is an exclusive jurisdiction agreement within the 2005 Hague Convention, then other contracting states must stay. But also, it will be possible now to obtain an anti-suit injunction to restrain proceedings within an EU or EFTA state. So that is a significant change, and it may be that this is one of the advantages of the new regime, that there is a greater availability of anti-suit injunctions. I think that brings us to what is perhaps the last uh, topic in this uh, general area, which is enforcement. So, Louise, can you tell us a bit about what's changed in respect of the enforcement of English judgments in the EU? Yes, well, the old position was that any judgment granted by a court in a EU member state, which of course included the UK, would be governed by the rules in the Brussels Recast Regulation and the Nagano Convention. And the whole purpose of those regimes was to provide for the virtual automatic recognition and enforcement of judgments within the European Union. The new position, now those rules no longer apply, depends firstly on when the proceedings were commenced. So for judgments given in proceedings which were commenced before exit day, the old law continues to apply. So even if the judgment's granted post-exit day, if the proceedings were started, then the old rules will continue to apply. For judgments given in proceedings commenced after the 31st of December 2020, then the enforcement of UK judgments in the EU is now more complicated. There's no automatic recognition or enforcement under Brussels or Lugano because we're no longer a member state. But some of that gap, as I just suggested, will be filled by the Hague Convention because the Hague Convention provides that for judgments given by a court under an exclusive jurisdiction agreement, they will be benefit from virtual automatic recognition enforcement in every other state which is a party to the convention, which includes all the EU member states. So recognition and enforcement is, is automatic, as I say. It's subject to very limited defences, similar to those that applied under the Brussels regime, and it also benefits from a much simpler procedure for enforcing a judgment. So this is very important because, in practice, many of the international cases that are before the English Commercial Court are there because of an express choice by the parties. And in those cases where there is an express English exclusive jurisdiction clause, 
the Hague Convention will, to a large extent, fill the enforcement gap left by the hard Brexit and the UK leaving the EU without a reciprocal regime. So subject to those two wrinkles I mentioned earlier about the Hague Convention, so it only applies to exclusive agreements and the timing issue, when you can enforce under the Hague Convention, that will largely fill the gap left by the Brussels regime. Otherwise, if it's not a Hague Convention state case, so either there's no jurisdiction agreement or it doesn't apply, enforcement now will be governed by the local law of the relevant state. So it doesn't mean that an English judgment can't be enforced, but the party seeking to enforce that judgment will have to get advice from a local lawyer about what the rules are for the enforcement of foreign judgments in that particular state, because we'll no longer be covered by the Brussels regime. And so therefore, it will become a matter of local law. Thanks, Louise. And Now, looking to the future, what do you think we can expect in terms of developments in this area? I think some of the, really, these are all things we've already talked about. So there's going to be cases which will be applying the new rules, for example, the new provisions about service out. There'll be some cases which will be starting to apply the Hague Convention rules more regularly, and we'll have to go through some of the wrinkles that we discussed in relation to that. I think that the biggest sort of open question is really to do with the possible accession to the Lugano Convention. So as we've already said, we previously were a party to the convention by virtue of our membership of the EU. But of course, there are non-member states who are parties to that convention, Switzerland, Norway and Iceland. So it would be possible for us to become a party to the Lugano Convention, even now we're not a member state. And in fact, the UK did apply to rejoin as a party in its own right. And and as we said, Switzerland, Norway and Iceland were keen and and said yes, but the European Union has now formally said no to that um, application. And it's not clear whether they're going to change their mind anytime soon about that. It's essentially really, I think, must be a political question because it would undoubtedly benefit businesses in all of those countries if there was free movement of judgments in between those countries. But the EU has formally said no. And the longer the gap between us leaving the European Union and any other application goes, it seems to me it's less likely they're going to change their mind. So it seems at the moment that the Lugano Convention will probably remain off the table, at least for the foreseeable future. Yes, it will be interesting to see what happens next. Well, we hope people have found this a helpful snapshot of where we are on jurisdiction, governing law and the enforcement of judgments. So there you have it, perhaps far from straightforward, but lots of food for thought. I'm very grateful to Louise for taking the time to speak with me about this topical issue and hope our listeners enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Do join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast.